As we approach the Word of God, it is good for us to uh, come together in prayer. Would you pray with me? We thank you for being a good Father to us, for knowing our names, for knowing our needs, for not leaving us alone. And we pray now as we turn to your scripture that you would feed us, mind, soul, and spirit. As we pray so often in the Lord's Prayer, we pray that you would give us this day uh, this bread, this daily bread, that it would nourish us, it would feed us. So speak to us now through your word. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. Now listen to the word of the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, the 21st chapter, beginning with the 25th verse. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then Jesus told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. And that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This again is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That text from Luke always is striking to me because of how out of step it is juxtaposed against our culture, particularly at this time of year, especially with its singular focus on waiting patiently in expectation. Uh, in an instant gratification culture, that's a tough call. Years ago, uh, at one of the Houston airports, uh, they started receiving an, an inordinate amount of complaints because of how long it took the bags to arrive at baggage claim after a flight. And so they doubled the amount of baggage handlers and there was immediate success. The wait time dropped to just eight minutes, but the complaints didn't go away. Puzzled, the airport did an analysis and found that it took passengers one minute to walk from the gate to the baggage claim and seven minutes to wait for their bags. 88% of their time 
mostly just standing around waiting. And so instead of trying to add more people, what they did was put the gates as far out in the terminal as possible, and the baggage claim as far away from the gates as possible, so now passengers had to walk six minutes to the baggage claim and wait only two minutes, and there were no more complaints. Um, by the way, this is why there are mirrors next to most elevators. Right after World War II, when high-rise office buildings began springing up, again, there were complaints that it took so long to wait for the elevator. Not being able to speed up the elevator, what did they do? They put mirrors in right by the elevator so we could look at ourselves. We could check our hair. You could surreptitiously look at people behind you while you waited and again, complaints went away. Speaking of elevators, do you know that the closed door button on half the elevators we ride in doesn't work? It's a placebo. It's just there for you to get some illusion that you're in control while you wait. Americans spend 37 billion hours a year waiting. There are websites to help you cope with waiting. 10 things to do while you wait.com <clears throat> suggests reading, writing, puzzles, solitaire, networking, phone calls, making grocery lists, which I think is what a lot of people do during sermons, uh, paying bills, setting goals, and finally, fantasize. Just pretend like you're not actually waiting, but you're on a desert island or something. The season of Advent that begins today consists of four weeks of waiting. Waiting for baby in a manger Jesus, yes, but also waiting for the Jesus who comes to be our judge. Waiting for the one to whom we are accountable for our whole life. That's a waiting of which we are not accustomed. It's a waiting we don't know what to do with because Advent fully intends to interrupt the cultural agenda already in place for these weeks so that we can focus anew on the purpose of our life as children of the living God. In our ordinary time, we grow bored waiting and so we play solitaire or pay bills or push meaningless buttons and stare at ourselves in the mirror to pass the time. In our ordinary time, we can't help but give attention to the siren call of our culture in these weeks to spend and splurge and indulge. In our ordinary time, we can pretend that life is where everything that is expected happens and everything is well in place. Reacting to these Advent texts which jar us out of this, uh, Presbyterian Minister Emery Gillespie has written, Advent scriptures are unapologetically crude. Their prophetic barking and guttural slings make me feel spat upon. My personal context is in part to blame for my oversensitivity. I'm feeling fairly normal right now, pretty pulled together. My family is healthy. Employment at my church is good, knock on wood. The phone is ringing a modest amount of times, bringing modest news. My wardrobe is working. The, in ordinary times such as this, when my family is afloat on a sea of relative stability, 
The bellicose and crass war cries of Advent are incomprehensible to me. They come off as misplaced rants to which I'm tempted to reply, you can't mean me, and if you mean me, your anger is disproportionate to my foolishness. Mostly I think what we want to do is pretend that we have no real need of the strident words of Advent. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Most of us are content with R.E.M.'s anthem being our Advent anthem. I once heard a pastoral counselor define balance as the illusion that the world is under your control. And so we fantasize and we pretend that nothing ultimate is at stake in these weeks. Henry Nouwen once began an Advent meditation by quoting Jewish-born French philosopher and Christian mystic Simone Weil, waiting patiently in expectation is the core foundation of a life of faith. Now and continues, when Jesus speaks about the end of time, he speaks precisely about the importance of waiting. People will be in agony, and they will say, the Christ is there. Oh no, the Christ is over here. Everybody will be totally upset, and many will be deceived. But Jesus says you must stand ready. You must stay awake. You must stay tuned to the word of God to be able to stand confidently, confide, with trust, stand confidently in the presence of God together in community. That's the attitude of waiting that allows us to be people who can live in a very chaotic world and survive spiritually. Advent, as reflected in our text this morning, is God's great discontinuity worked on a world where many people believe we're going along just fine using our own devices. Today, with December's calendar already so full for many of us, God steps in and interrupts all of it. And the Bible speaks of a time this time of judgment and interruption as redemption. In his, works, in his words in Luke about the ending of the world and the destruction of the status quo this morning, Jesus is really talking about a God who loves us enough to interrupt us and to interrupt all our pretending. Here we are, proceeding down our comfortable runs creatures of habit and routine that we like, and then in a place we don't expect, a way we don't expect, in a time we don't expect, God comes. In W.H. Auden's, for the time being, a Christmas oratorio, it's Auden's long masterpiece of a poem. He has Herod, the king, symbolizing the practical, reasonable nature of most of us, say, oh God, put away justice and truth, for we cannot understand them and we do not want them. Eternity would bore us dreadfully. Leave the heavens and come down. 
become our uncle, look after baby, amuse grandfather, escort madam to the opera, help Willie with his homework, introduce Muriel to that handsome naval officer, be interesting and weak like us, and we'll love you as we love ourselves. Later, in exasperation, Auden has Herod say, I asked for a God who should be as like me as possible. What used to me is a God whose divinity consists of doing things that I cannot do and saying clever things that I cannot understand. The God I want and intend to get must be someone I can recognize immediately and without having to wait and see what this God says or does. There must be nothing in the least extraordinary about this God. Produce this God at once, please. I am sick of waiting. And this is why Advent is such a warm and wonderful gift to us. It stops us. It stops our mindless killing of time. It stops us and rouses us and moves us and redeems us into God's interrupting, intrusive spirit. Look, I know that there are many of us who come to church to get a sense of stability, and I hope we get that sometimes. But Advent suggests there are also many of us who yearn for a genuine disruption for some divinely induced instability too. Many of us are caught in situations where it feels like there is no conceivable way out and God interrupts and says, I will set you free. Some of you are enslaved in habits that are literally killing you. And God interrupts and says, I will set you free. We live in a world where the problems on the world stage are so massive and complex this morning. We don't see how we can summon the resources to address it. And God says, I will interrupt this and lead this world to freedom too. And just as we get settled in and accommodated to how things are, just when we have learned to face facts and accept reality, We are surprised by the intrusions of God. Somehow, God interrupts our comfortable adjustment to the present and offers us a considerably disrupted future. Our notions of what can and cannot be are turned upside down. This is Advent. As Flannery O'Connor chronicler of a graceful, shaking, God-interrupted world once said, to the heart of hearing, you shout. To those almost blind, you draw bold and startling figures. Advent is a shout that says that our God not only cares about us, our God comes to us. We don't have to go around getting everything together on our own. We don't have to make the world work out right on our own. God moves, God acts, God creates, God recreates. A friend of mine likes to say that the difference between a living true God and a dead false God is that a dead false God will never surprise you. 
Advent is the yearly reminder that our God is a God capable of surprise. Perhaps we ought to think about gathering at church is that time when we come together to develop the skills necessary to follow a God who's full of surprises. Leaving the life of pretend and distraction means we always have to be alert. We never know where God's next interruption will come from. John Boyle, preaching at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago a few years ago, told of his own God interruption this way. I saw him out of the corner of my eye, Boyle writes, walking toward me on that cold day in April 1945. As I stood before boxcars piled up with corpses from the Nazi concentration camp in Dachau that we we had just liberated, They had been machine gunned to death in a last gasp frenzy on the part of guards when they heard that the American forces were coming. I stared in horror and disbelief at the carloads of carnage, the inhumaneness of it all. Instinctively, I reached for the 45 caliber pistol on my hip as he approached me just in case. Then I noticed his tear-stained face as in a combination of German and broken English, he began to speak, Danka, Danka, thank you, thank you. He was trying in the only way he could to express joy and gratitude for what he thought would never happen to him, to be freed, to be spared, to be saved. Then this Lithuanian Jew who'd been a prisoner at Dachau for three years reached into the pocket of his threadbare shirt. Once again, like Pavlov's dog, I automatically let my left hand drift toward my holster. The army had trained me well. Out of his pocket, he slowly brought forth a dirty-looking crust of bread, and he held it out to me. I took it, and he told me that the day before, a friend had given it to him just as the friend was led away to be executed. Now this man was giving to me what had been given to him as an act of gratitude. I thanked him. I put the crust of bread in the pocket of my field jacket where it stayed for several weeks. From time to time, I would finger it, a memory of a strange interruption of grace in the most horrific of all settings. It was soon reduced to crumbs, Then one day I sat on a bench outside the cathedral in Salzburg. I emptied the crumbs into my hand and I stared at them for a long while. And then I fed them to the pigeons that were gathered around my feet. Boyle says, over the course of nearly 60 years in ministry, I have officiated at, participated in, and partaken in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper more times than I can remember. What I do remember is that whenever I have done so, I remember that survivor of the Holocaust and that dirty-looking crust of bread. In that place of horror and depravity, that crumb, an unexpected gift from an unexpected angle was my redemption, and I have been feasting off that crumb given from God 
ever since. When God chooses to interrupt you, and God will choose to interrupt you, today, certainly by tomorrow, God is fairly impatient about these things. Maybe you'll be interrupted as you come forward for communion today. But whenever, however you are interrupted, look up in that moment. Raise your head. That interruption is your redemption drawing near. God interrupts and God surprises. God eliminates distraction and heals you. God shuts down our pretending and fills us with new life. God's advent interrupts and leads us to a life that we cannot imagine or create or manage on our own. It leads us to a life that we cannot have without a God who comes to us, judges us, and redeems us. Amen.